Hi, and welcome to A Body's Tale, where we discuss medical maladies firsthand. I'm your host, Eric Ramson. On today's episode, we talk to a young man who had his sternum broken during an MMA fight. We talk about also his more recent injury during an arm wrestling match uh, that left uh, him with a broken humerus. And uh, as we describe the broken sternum, he describes uh, in further detail the surgery that's involved and uh, the fascinating recovery uh, afterward. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. All right, uh, I'm sitting here uh, with Nick, and we were going to talk about a couple of different bone breaks. <laughs> um, I think the first one we should start with, uh, obviously nobody can see you sitting here, but you've got kind of a, it's not a full cast on your arm, it's kind of a more mobile cast on your right arm. Uh, and this happened recently. So tell me a little bit more about this. Yeah, yeah, so I've, you know, it's, it's a good humoral break. The cast itself isn't like your average kind of cast. It's plastic and Velcro. Kind of just leave it hanging off the side of your body to align the bones better. Um, This is better than the traditional cast because it helps to not allow any swelling in the arm and there's no stink to it. You can take it off, it's pretty neat. But um, the break itself is a bit of an embarrassing story, but it's, I, I like telling it though. We are, we were at a boxing social at my apartment and there were a lot of guys there obviously it's the boxing club and at one point during the night the guys started arm wrestling and while everyone was arm wrestling there was this big dude i i call him the viking he's like this six foot two full beard huge guy understandably he was taken out every other boxer left and right at the social. And my roommate just, I, I hear his commotion coming from the other room. I'm hanging out with a few friends and I go walk over there. My roommate stops me, just, he, he looks at me, he points to Viking and he just goes, take him on. I'm just thinking, I, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, sure. And um, so we start going at it and it's going well and people are cheering on both sides. And at one point it's going really well, and then I hear a pop, and then it really isn't. Um, so, well, I remember, I don't remember the exact point in time where the pop happened, I just remember hearing it, but I, it was going well, and then my arm was on the other side of the table, it was on the table. Um, what I could feel was my shoulder and my wrist were completely fine. It didn't feel weird at all, but my elbow region was just asleep. And when you break an arm, you know, you expect to feel a lot of pain, but I didn't really feel that. It was more just, I just knew the bones were shifting. I didn't actually feel any pain. I just noticed the bone was broken. I looked at my roommate. I say in this tone, just my arm's broken. He just goes, yup, it is. So after that point, I just kind of, you know, pull it off the countertop and it just kind of hangs off off the countertop. I can feel the bones shifting, so I know it's broken. But um, yeah, first thing I do is I call my mom. She doesn't believe me, but I, I convinced her along the way. And we drove to the hospital. Uh, what they said is that it's a spiral fracture, mm-hmm. which is one of the more common uh, breaks in humeral bones. It's just that this is the first case they've seen it happening during arm wrestling. <laughs> But um, what was really interesting, though, is that I didn't know this could happen. But apparently it's a 
paralysis and seizure patients where um, if you tense your muscles hard enough, you're actually able to break the bone. Excuse me. You're actually able to break the bone that they're focusing on. So we found this out and it was further looked in on by my roommates looking at a bunch of arms breaking during arm wrestling contests. And every single time where the arm breaks, the person who had their arm broken was on the, well, losing side. I didn't win, but I was doing, I was doing well, like I said. Mm -hmm. And so that lined up with the seizure break rather well. And I don't know. It's it's a little embarrassing because you kind of have to say, yeah, I got my arm broken in an arm wrestling competition, which isn't exactly the most hardcore way to break your arm. Sure. But um, it, it's it's a pretty neat story for sure. It didn't require surgery, which was pretty nice. And, you know, it's something to talk about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. After we had talked about, about that before, I looked up a couple of cases in the primary literature of arm wrestling and that leading to uh, broken arms. And a couple of things. One, there was a, a uh, an article in the journal Tra- or Journal of Trauma um, that in 1997 that had shown that there were uh, 30 people. This was a case study of 30 people that broke their arms while arm wrestling. And um, and then there was another one that was in the uh, uh, BMJ Journal, uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine. And it was an unusual injury following an arm wrestle. Uh, where essentially it, it sounds very similar to kind of what you were saying. This person was arm wrestling, especially arm wrestling somebody uh, bigger mm-hmm. than them. And then what ended up happening is that it it wasn't necessarily the you know the fact that you you would expect it to be like this weird snap that mm-hmm. it's, but it was it was essentially the fact that they were doing well, mm-hmm. and then they had kind of they think had kind of shifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so in one of the articles, they were talking about it going from a concentric to an eccentric. The fact that you, you shift and you're, you're going from one direction to kind of slightly moving the other direction. Mm -hmm. And that that's enough with the uh, paired with the, the additional force that someone who's got a longer forearm can exert Mm -hmm. that those two kind of paired together can lead to that snap. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's really kind of this fascinating idea that it's, um, and in this one, they, in the British uh, Journal of Sports Medicine, they were talking about the patient was in an offensive winning position for the first 30 seconds approximately, um, and then they restarted, and then they were in a neutral position for about 10 seconds when he felt his arm pop. Hmm. Uh, so they, after restarting, you know, they're 10 seconds in, and he just mm-hmm. feels it pop. And it's, it's just all those forces going in weird directions. Yeah. That just snap it. It's a weird torque. To it is a really weird torque on that uh, that humerus. Yeah, no, so. it, it was just odd because you know when you break something or you're pushing something to the limit, you would expect some type of signal from your body saying, "Sure, hey, slow down. Hey, you're going a bit too far." I didn't feel any of that. My right. body was just green light. Go ahead for it, and then, and then it hit the wall. Yeah. yeah. So it's just interesting to hear that it, it does occur in arm wrestling, especially sometimes even when you think you're winning. Yeah. Or you're sitting in there in a neutral position. So yeah, everything's got a risk. Yeah. Uh, but for those of you listening, that really wasn't our original intent in this conversation. <laughs> our original intent is, uh, in, in my conversation with Nick, is that he has got a very interesting uh, occurrence that happened during an MMA fight mm-hmm. where he uh, was kicked in the sternum and it essentially broke his sternum in numerous places but uh, 
I'll let Nick start off. Why don't yeah, you? Sure. Why don't you start us at the beginning? Uh, you had talked about kind of early on in life you were getting into martial arts and kind of how this all started. Yeah, sure. I'll start with the background. So, like most young boys, my dad started me off in a lot of sports, everything from soccer to baseball, even a little bit of tennis and basketball. But um, I never really found myself liking the team sports. The guys in it were really cool. I just wasn't the kind of player. Um, so he put me into karate, which was a big thing in the town I was from. And I found myself really liking it. You know, just the overall structure and the rely on yourself kind of ordeal. Um, for the most part, I stuck with it throughout middle school and high school and tried to do it a bit in college, but as things happen, schedules get full and you, you have to put stuff out of the way. But the main points where this event happened was in my high school years. Now, I've gone through multiple martial arts at this point, and I wanted to try something that was a bit new, a bit more challenging as well. So I decided to go into MMA. There was this one MMA studio at our, in, in our town. And I went there for a little while. It was it was a good time. Um, a lot of nice people and met a few new social circles, some of the friends I still have today. But um, at one point, our school went up in a tournament against a rival school. Again, it was a healthy rivalry. Everyone liked each other. They're all good people. Of course, there were some dislikes, but you can't really have a tournament without some conflict going on. But at this tournament, at this tournament, um, I, I probably should preface this by saying, by this point in time, with the experience I had accumulated throughout my lifetime in martial arts, I developed a ego, one that was a bit bigger than what is healthy, and one that is ultimately going to, it can prove a downfall. And in this case, that's what it did. So at this tournament against the rival school, I went up against this one kid who was seen to be in terms of body weight. He was a bit heavier than I was, but we were still in the same weight class. And because he was a bit heavier, I didn't expect him to be as fast as I was. Um, again, I had a huge ego. It kind of comes with the whole I know everything kind of ordeal. At the tournament, it was the semifinals, I think it was. And it, we were going into it. It was about round two or three. So we were both relatively tired already because back in high school, you still are learning the ins and outs of MMA. It's it can be hard to get a hold of the idea that you don't expend a lot of your energy during the first few rounds. So by the third round, you can be really tired. Um, by this point, I was. And so my fighting style at the time was very offensive. It was very little defense, if at all. And at one point during the fights, I went in for a quick jab and I left my guard down. He was able to push me back and then 
With my guard down, not covering my chest, he landed what's called a heel kick into my sternum, which is basically you, you raise your knee up to your chest and you push out with your heel. So understandably, this has a lot of force behind it, more than just a striking kind of force. It's, it's a bulk force. And at that point, my sternum was broken in three places and I had a around five or six of my ribs broken as well. And yeah, you can say the match was pretty much over at that point, so I don't think I was gonna get back up from there. I was transported to the hospital, U of M's uh, Mott Hospital. So at this point, because you said the, the arm you really didn't feel, you, you felt this though, right? The... Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that's, that's the thing is that I definitely felt it at first. I definitely knew something was wrong. What happened immediately was my lung was deflated. So you had a huge shortness of breath. And which, which lung was this? My left lung. Your left lung. Yeah. You have this huge shortness of breath. And for those of you who haven't deflated a lung before, and hopefully you never have that happen to you, what happens is that if you breathe in all the way right now, it feels like you're doing that, but at max you're taking basically the size breath as you would a regular hiccup mm. it's it's a very small amount of breath but it feels like you're doing max and it feels like you're not getting the amount of air that you need and it's really easy to pass out as a result which is what happened a few times um so we went into mott which i yeah i think it's just called mott it's called lyman mott or something um they stabilized me there and what they told me is that in order to get my chest back to its original form, because at this point it was concave, um, the best way to do it was to do something called a ravage surgery, which if any of you are familiar with chest surgeries, which is, is a, it's possible, but if not, there's this one popularized surgery called Nussbar, where they put a metal rod through your the right side of your chest, right under the nipple, uh, through your rib cage, and it stabilizes the sternum for those who are born with concave chests. And the ravage surgery was a bit like that, except instead of having one bar, it was two. And what happened was they put one bar just at, just right under my right nipple, and the left was a bit lower, about three, four inches lower than where the other one was. So it was kind of like a little Z shape under my rib cage. But um, initially what they did was an attempt to ease the pain coming out of surgery and to prevent me from having to go in and get these bars removed. They tried a new experimental surgery coming out of Kentucky where the bars were made out of calcium instead of just regular iron or steel. And I thought to myself, that's, that's a pretty good. I was, again, I was super high off morphine and all these other painkillers at the moment, so I couldn't really make a informed consent decision, but my parents did. So that's how, that's how that went. And after I woke up after the surgery, they told me that the calcium bars were already beginning to deteriorate much quicker than usual. 
And so the, the idea behind the calcium yeah. bars is that eventually they're going to uh, get absorbed into your body and they're going to go away on their own versus having to surgically remove mm-hmm. them. Yeah, yeah, my apologies for it to explain that. Um, yeah, yeah, what Dr. Ramson said. But um, at this point, they're beginning to deteriorate much quicker than usual with, than expected, wherein they're supposed to be dissolved about three to six months post-surgery. They were dissolving within two hours. So understandably, this was of some concern. I mean, I was getting all the calcium I need for the day, but wasn't exactly the way I wanted. So at this point, they just told me, we got to go do the surgery again. You, it's it's going to suck, but we got to do it. And just, I was just, I, I acted like just, my parents told me I acted like a full grandpa, just get it over with and just want to be done with it and just move on. And so we went, we got it all done. And I woke up and I was just in the hospital bed. I was going to be there for about a week and a half after that point. Yeah, in the hospital bed, bedridden. Um, Yeah, so I was fed and given pills and I didn't shower that entire time. I wasn't allowed to, which kind of sucked because I reeked. But... um, yeah, it was really weird though, because the entire time you're bedridden, even if it's just for a week and a half, two weeks, you you have to relearn how to walk, which was something I didn't expect to happen from this kind of injury. And it was odd because if any of you have ever broken a bone before and went through the PT rehabilitation process, it feels like the, the efforts there, it's just, it's not supporting, it's not going as much. It, it, it feels as if you're trying to lift something that's just not possible for your lift. If it's too heavy for you. The efforts there is just not going. And so yeah, I had to relearn how to walk. I was grumpy as all heck. And about after those two weeks, I spent another two weeks at home in bed for pretty much the entire time. But, um. Yeah, and after that, I just went to school, you know, light backpack. I had one of those, like, little sling backpacks I could just put on one arm instead of having to put the whole bulk just on my chest. Um, and, yeah, but it, it was a, around a seven to nine month recovery period. And around the sixth month period they had to take out the first bar and that surgery went well and the second one came out a little while afterwards now when I first got the surgery the my, my chest cavity was still healing and in that process it was healing up with a lot of fluid a lot of I'm not exactly sure what kind of fluid it is if, if you know like I'd be happy to know because I have no idea but um what the docs gave me they they put a plastic tube that went under my arm through my rib cage to my chest and it was like this little like little pouch thingy that would just collect fluid it was really gross and every night I have to sleep with it and every morning I have to empty it when I went to go take a shower but um, the main point I want to get at is that at some points 
uh, they had to go take it out. And you aren't supposed to get surgery for that kind of thing. And so I went to the hospital. We had a little doctor's visit. And then doctors told me, just said, I got to pull it out. I'm just thinking, do I get anything? He's like, nope, you don't. <laughs> just dad hold him down. <laughs> and so what happened was he just undid the staples that were holding the tube in my chest. And by this point, it's been about a few months. And so my chest had already begun to scab and heal around the tube. So it was mended to my chest. So what the doc had to do, he had to yank it. It's, it. It was, it probably wasn't that hard. I was just probably being a crybaby. But um, he had to break all the scabbing that I had gone through. And it was, I, I'm going to say it was more painful than the actual surgery process healing itself. It was probably the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. And it's something, it's from the after effects of breaking my entire rib cage. Interesting. You know? Yeah, a lot of that fluid is, is just the healing process is going to lead to a lot of inflammation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as the the blood vessels are healing and stuff, they're also not going to be a fully, they're, they're not all going to be, the capillaries aren't going to be fully formed and things. And so they're going to be a little bit more leaky. But the inflammation process is going to lead to more more fluid in that area anyway. And, and part of that is actually benefit is it's bringing all the uh, white blood cells to the area to help deal with any kind of potential infection and mm -hmm. things. So all that fluid was probably full of just uh, white blood cells and, and things and kind of pussy as a result mm -hmm. as those white blood cells are doing their thing and, and killing off some of the infectious bacteria. Um, and so you just, you end up with a lot of fluid when you have healing. I mean, just that's what the swelling ends up. You get a lot of uh, inflammation and it leads to swelling and that swelling then uh, is, is a, a good thing um, during that process, but you just get more fluid in that location. Mm -hmm. So that sounds pretty gross. Like yeah. it would be nice, chunky, gross fluid coming yeah. out of that, that pouch all the time. Well, it's the nicest thing to see every morning, but at least something was happening. And that's that's interesting then that you had more pain from that than uh, mm -hmm. anything else. Yeah, because I mean, oh, I also forgot to mention that um, it probably, it probably would have been more painful to actually have the surgery, but in an effort to relieve me of pain, and to keep it from being a consistent pain throughout my life, the doctors, in order to get past my ribcage to place the bars, had to cut the area above my sternum open to place and wire in the bars. But the pain would have been so great. So what they did, they cut out the nerves around my chest, my mid-chest area. So to this day, I'm not able to feel that area at all. I don't think I'll ever be able to again. But um, that's probably the main contributor as to why it's not as painful. I feel if I just had the regular sure. surgery, it would have been <laughs> awful. Sure. And so in an effort to save that pain, and you said there was always a chance of additional pain mm -hmm. as everything's healing together. You said it was going to be uh, essentially excruciating through the healing process. Yeah. So they decided to, to damage those nerves on purpose so that it wouldn't be a problem while you heal. Yeah, and now I'm just speaking to patch up all the holdouts in the story. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Yeah, uh, throughout the healing process, it was, it, it wasn't, when they were pulling out the tube, it was an, an instant pain, and it was excruciating, but it didn't last long. Okay. So it could be compared to the overall healing process in that, the pain I had from the healing process 
was excruciating in about two to three seconds uh, terms, but it was consistent throughout the full two weeks I was bedridden. Um, every breath I would take was was pained. It was I know I knew I had to breathe and I liked to breathe, but um, it it almost felt like sometimes I just didn't want to. I, I would hold my breath sometimes just so I wouldn't just feel pain. pain. Sure. Yeah, and sure. in order to heal my um, lung deflation, in order to not get pneumonia from any fluid filling up in my lungs, they had me on breathing exercises, which with paired with the surgery wasn't exactly the most fun time for me. Right. You've got something that hurts to do like breathing and now they're, they've got you doing all these exercises exactly. that force you to breathe even more. Exactly. It, it, it would feel like, it would feel like them giving me dumbbells with this broken arm, just sure. telling me to fix the muscle and they had to do it. And I understand why they did it, but um, it, it was pretty neat though. They had like these little, like these little, cartridges that you would breathe into and suck air out of and it would measure the force of each of your breaths and with the lung being deflated you think you're doing really well but really you're beating maybe an eighth of the amount that the normal person breathes sure with that whole maximum capacity thing i mentioned earlier but um yeah no that that was it, it was a weird time in 11th grade <laughs> for yeah. sure getting back into school and People haven't seen you in the month, and you, you just look different, too. Oh, absolutely. And you, you talked about all that atrophy from being bedridden, mm-hmm. and so you would have lost that muscle, and and then you now have a different shaped chest. I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. it's it, they did their best, but it's going to be hard to repair it to back yeah. to what it was. And... I mean, scars make stories. So <laughs> it, sure. As, as long as you got, like, I, I'm not, it, it looks different than it used to, but I'm not insecure about it or anything it's it's got its own story behind it and i think it, at least it's a cool story yeah you know when you you had said in our earlier meeting that uh this didn't really affect your um your you, you still are, are willing to to do things and take risks and, and mm-hmm. things but you you did say there was kind of a learning aspect to that so you can take risks but uh, why, don't, why don't you go ahead and yeah, talk sure. about that yeah um so one of the big reasons that i include the major backstory this entire ordeal is the idea of ego while growing up um with the whole fighting in the rounds during the mma my ego had led me to believe that i was faster than the person i was fighting my ego led me to believe that i wouldn't be hurt by the person that i was fighting Um, it's this pride that everyone tends to have while growing up. It's not an unusual thing, but if with every risk comes consequence and no one is invincible to that, every step you take towards a progressive future towards success is going to have risk in it. And every risk has a possible downfall to it. And you shouldn't be afraid of that. at least to a reasonable level. I mean, don't go jumping off a cliff without parachutes and expecting to land just fine. But um, when it comes to taking risks, don't be afraid of it, but don't think you're invincible either. Always weigh the possible consequences or side effects and judge on whether or not it's really worth it. Because in some cases, in a lot of cases, it is. You know, it, it's it's going to be something that could propel you greater into the future. But in other cases, maybe you just want to arm wrestle a dude that's 
twice as large as you are for not much payoff. It's it's ego that can really be detrimental to a future. And it's really important to make that differentiation between confidence and ego, especially while growing up. Absolutely. I think it's still something that people battle with every day. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get rid of, you know? Absolutely. It, I mean, you got, it's, because confidence is important. Sure. You know, everyone needs confidence, but it's really easy to overstep it too. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, Nick. I think I don't think I can top that. So um, thank you for stopping by. Oh, I'm happy to do Dr. Ramson anytime. Thanks again for stopping by A Body's Tale. That was Nick talking about his sternum uh, reconstruction surgery. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can look up the Ravitch surgery, which is R-A-V-I-T-C-H surgery on uh, any of your favorite search engines. You can also, a really great website to go to for uh, these surgical procedures would be surgery.ucsf.edu, which is the University of California, San Francisco. And you can uh, look up, if you go to their conditions and procedures, you can find the um, pectus excavatum surgery under P for pectus excavatum. And that is a similar surgery to what uh, young Nick undertook. Thank you once again for stopping by, and I hope you join us next time.